Okay, so this is Reformation Weekend. You've heard that over and over again. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a lot of stuff going on this weekend. Yesterday we met uh, in the morning for a history lesson, and I talked for an hour and a half, and somehow people listened for an hour and a half. Um, we told, I told the history of the Reformation uh, from Martin Luther tracing it through Calvin and Knox, uh, then Scottish uh, Reformation, Presbyterianism, uh, the Covenanter story, their exile to the colonies here, uh, the influence over the revolution and the formation of the Constitution, the formation of the Presbyterian Church, the history of the Presbyterian Church in America all the way to the PCA and to TCPC. So if you were not there, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, it's a fascinating history that we're a part of. But I did want to have an opportunity to not just talk about the history of the Reformation, but the theology of the Reformation, because obviously uh, the Reformation is a theological movement uh, before it is anything else. Now, it's hard to say, especially in, uh, especially in 25, 30 minutes, it's very hard to give a lecture on the theology of the Reformation because there is so much theology that came out of the Reformation. That's one of the things people don't realize. Uh, what, what gets so much of the attention is what I'm going to talk about this morning, uh, but also like Calvinism, uh, church government, things like that. Uh, but there's stuff like uh, worship was a huge part of the Reformation. The theology and doctrine of worship was an enormous part of the Reformation. Like I said, uh, church uh, government, ecclesiology, structures of church, all that stuff, that's a huge part of the Reformation. Uh, doctrines that you just take for granted were big parts of the Reformation. So I could go so many different directions, but if I only have 25, 30 minutes to talk to you about the theology of the Reformation, then um, if you're a Reformation scholar, you know that I have to start with what um, have become the five pillars of the Reformation. There are five Latin phrases that are, the, are, are wild, widely, wildly held as the pillars of what Reformed thought is. Because once I expound on these, you will see how a lot of what we believe kind of flows out of these foundational truths. And so what happened is you've got this, you've got this Reformation, this movement, uh, which uh, originally was intended to be a reform. Um, it was not a protest, Protestant uh, protest uh, in its early inception. It was supposed to be a reform. Martin Luther, when he put his theses on the door, he literally was saying, there's some abuses of the church that need to be corrected. Let's have a debate. Let's have a discussion. Let's correct the church. But it turned into something much more. And out of it, all of it could be summarized in these five statements. Let me give them to you. We're going to go through them. Um, I'm going to explain what was going on, how the reformers corrected it. And then I thought it'd be helpful for us to maybe imagine how uh, these apply to us, particularly if we have slipped back into some of the same traps that the reformers were fighting against back in the Reformation. We don't want this to be, we don't want this conference in any way to turn into this big, bad, ugly Roman Catholic Church, we got it all right conference re retreat weekend. That is not the intention. We need to place ourselves under the critique of the Reformation as well. So I want to do that with each of them as well. Let me tell you what they are if, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with them. Uh, sola Scriptura. 
explain what that is in a minute. Solus Christus. Sola gratia. Sola fide. And soli deo gloria. We're going to go through each of those and I'll explain what they mean and um, talk about what the reformers said about them and then apply it. Sola Scriptura. Uh, That means Scripture alone. It does not mean only Scripture. It means Scripture alone, and that will be important in a moment. This is the foundation of the Reformation, that Scripture alone is our authority, that Scripture alone is the only rule of faith and practice, that Scripture alone is our only foundation. As you heard in the history lesson yesterday, as you heard in the sermon, or you will hear in the sermon, what set the Reformation on fire and spread throughout the world was the Scriptures. What was going on at the time? What was going on at the time is a church that believed, yes, in the infallibility of the Bible and the infallibility of the church's interpretation and teaching of the Bible. And that's the key. Two authorities, Scripture and the church. Church's interpretation of Scripture. Now, here's why that gets really dangerous, because at the time, nobody could read the Bible. It was only translated in Latin. Um, It was this... It was not accessible to anybody. Nobody had a Bible. They were incredibly expensive. And so you had this great, mysterious book that nobody's read, nobody understands, nobody knows. But that's okay. Because you have a church who can interpret and tell you what the Bible says in an infallible manner. And so you can see if you teach... If you teach any time that you have two authorities, two infallible authorities, Scripture and church, you can see which very quickly becomes the authority, right? And it's going to be the interpretation of Scripture, the church's interpretation. And that is what was going on. And, um, and what happened was um, there was just abuse after abuse after abuse. The, um, the indulgences get the most... Pub, but there were so many abuses that were taking place that were not biblical practices, but the church has the authority, infallible authority to make that. Okay, well, in comes into um, the 16th century comes the scriptures availability. Erasmus was big in this, um, but this, this is what, what, set, what, what set the place on fire is that Martin Luther, in his PhD studies, gathered some linguistic skills, and there was accessibility to original manuscripts, Greek and Hebrew, Luther started studying the scriptures for himself. I talked in the lecture about how he recognized that um, the Latin Vulgate had always translated the Greek word metanoia as do penance, when really the Greek word means repent. And so what the Catholic Church would teach is Jesus came and proclaimed, do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Luther looks at it and says, actually it says repent for the kingdom of God at hand. That's different. And so we started to see the scriptures being opened up. Well, Luther translated, this is very controversial, Luther translated the Bible into the native tongue of German, the German tongue. He translated the German language. And there is this enormous revolution going on at the time with the invention of the printing press, um, which was like the, the movement of the internet, which completely changed the day. So suddenly you have Bible interpretation going on, you have Bible translation going on, you have mass dissemination of Bible, and all of a sudden, the Bible started threatening the authority of the church. And so this is what was the foundation of the Reformation. Scripture alone is our authority, not the church. Now, 
Let me tell you how we abuse that, okay? I want to do this with each point. It is, uh, it is sola scriptura, not solo scriptura, and that makes a difference. Um, we do not say this, only the Bible. We say the Bible alone is the infallible authority. Now, here's why that is important. The overreaction that's come out of the Reformation, and we're still in this in so many ways, is all you need is you and your Bible, and that is enough. Um, that the Bible is, since, since, since the Bible is the only inspired document, all I've got to do, me and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, that's enough. Uh, traditions have been forsaken. Creeds have been forsaken. Confessions have been forsaken. And there is that famous, uh, there's that famous Anabaptist creed, no creed but Christ, which is a creed, so ironic. But no creed but Christ is their creed. And what they're saying in there is we don't need creeds, we don't need confessions, we need our Bibles. And then even in uh, some of the practices in the evangelical church of I don't need the church, I don't need community, I don't need elders, I don't need ordained ministers to preach and expound the word. I just get along with my Bible and I'll figure out what God wants. That was never the intention of sola scriptura. Um, here was the intention of sola scriptura. Traditions are very important. We are not disconnected from tradition. It matters what the church has always done. Creeds are very important. Confessions are very important. All of these things are very important. They are just not infallible. So the posture of the Reformation is this. We stand humbly on history on those who have gone before us, but we also allow history to critique the scriptures. Wait, the other way around. We also allow scripture to critique history. We trust the church. We love the church. You come to Sunday not to, with your Bible, figure out where I'm wrong every week. You do trust the church. You do trust the session. You do trust Westminster Confession of Faith. But if I were to get up there and say something that directly contradicts Scripture, you, you trust the Scriptures, not me. So sola scriptura, this is what united the Reformation. Now it led to this as a fundamental component of it. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Now this speaks to the mediator. Who is the mediator? This is Westminster. Who is the mediator of God's elect? The only mediator of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do you think they said the only mediator of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think it was because they lived in a pluralistic society and they were trying to make a statement to postmodernism of you, you say this God is this God and this God and this God and we're saying the only true God is Jesus? No, no, no. They're making a statement, a very profound statement. We have one mediator between man and God. His name is Jesus. Why? The church taught that Christ was indeed the mediator, but how did you have access to that mediator? The mediator between Christ and man is the church. So yes, Christ is the mediator. It's just like what they did with Scripture. Yes, yeah, Scripture is infallible, but we have to interpret Scripture. Same way. Christ is the mediator, but we are the mediator between Christ and you. And so uh, the way the church mediates between Christ and his people is the sacraments, uh, confession. You go to a priest, you confess your sins, and the priest absolves you of your sins. And in that way, he is a mediator. They would say, oh, he's not, an, he's not a mediator like Jesus is a mediator, but he is a mediator between you and Jesus, right? Um, mass, um, transubstantiation, 
uh, they teach that this is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ that you participate in. He's the mediator. But how does it become the body and blood of Jesus Christ? The priest, the church, has the authority and ability to transform that into the body and blood of Christ. So there's a mediator of Christ, but the church is the mediator between Christ and the church. The reformers came and said, absolutely not. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need a priest to get to Jesus. I have Jesus. This led to um, the priesthood of all believers. You've heard that language before. It's a very evangelical Protestant thing to say. Priesthood of all believers. The belief that I don't have to go through a priest to get to God. You don't have to go through me to get to God. You don't have to go through the church to get to God. You get to God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now let's talk about abuses. Like we did with the scripture one. What that has done again in and, and, and Protestant world is it has removed for so many people the authority and significance of the church. Once again, in the same way like I'm sufficient, me and my Bible is sufficient to figure things out. I don't need, in the same way, I am sufficient, priesthood of all believers, individualism, all I need is me and my prayer life with Jesus. That is wrong. You need community. You need the body. You need church membership. You need church authority. You need church discipline. You need the church. The priesthood of all believers was never intended to be interpreted as this individualistic journey me and Jesus are on, which it has turned into that. That's not what it means. You need community. You need the church. It's just that you don't need the community and the need and need the church to be saved. You can be saved apart from me. When we every week confess our sins publicly and privately and the pastor um, reads the assurance of pardon, that is not absolving you of those sins. Those sins have been taken care of by the one mediator, Jesus Christ. That is reminding you. That's why, that's why we, ne we would never stay. Here's your assurance of pardon. I, Mark Randall, forgive thee. We read a passage that reminds you that your mediator has forgiven you and that his work works. So one mediator between God and man, solo Christus. Now, now we get into the salvation stuff. How does one access this mediator? If it's not through the church, well, how does this happen? Uh, there's, two, there's two here that I'm going to lump together because they really go hand in hand. Sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. Those two are so connected that I'm just going to pick them up together and it'll help us save on time. Grace alone is our only method. Sola fide, faith alone, is our only means. Okay? Again, the church taught grace. They did. They taught grace. But it was a grace and works together. A grace and works compound. They did not teach grace alone. They taught grace plus works in so many different ways. One, we talked about the lecture yesterday. They have a view of sin of both guilt and punishment. The consequence of sin is guilt and punishment. And, and there's truth to that. There really is. But here's what they say. Grace can take care of the guilt. You have to take care of the punishment. So you go to the priest and to confess your sins, the priest can absolve you of those sins. That takes away the, the guilt of your sins, okay? You're not condemned for those sins. 
but you now have to go do penance. You now have, now have to go this, this, and this, say this and this, whatever, to work that off. Or, so you work it off either in this life or in purgatory, where you will spend ages working off the punishment of your sins. The reformers came and said, absolutely not. Grace and grace alone for guilt and punishment. Grace and grace alone from beginning to end. I do nothing. I do nothing. I produce, it is Jesus and his grace plus nothing. And, and, and to say Jesus plus anything, anything is a heresy. You cannot add one thing to it without corrupting the gospel. Grace and grace. Now, this is Luther. This is where Luther was shines. This is where I was talking about this morning in Galatians. You read his commentary in Galatians. You read his lectures in Galatians. And man, he hammers this. Justification by grace alone. However, you say this. Okay, but we do do something. And that something, how do we access this grace and grace alone apart from works? How do we access that? How do we? You can talk. Faith, right. By grace you have been saved through faith. So they would say, faith alone is the only instrument, the only means by which we access the grace of God. What faith does is it unites us to Christ, unites us to Christ in such a way, I'm I'm not going to repeat this because this is my sermon. It unites us to Christ in such a way that faith is the instrument that connects us to, to the alien righteousness of Christ. So Christ's righteousness becomes ours by faith in Christ. Ah, so the one thing we do have to do is faith. Okay, so grace alone plus faith. The former say, faith alone, but, finish the verse, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not yours. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. You are saved completely by by grace, You are united to the grace of Jesus by faith, and even the faith that you have is a gift of God given to you. So you literally do nothing. You do nothing in your salvation. All right, Um, we still need this today. We do not want to just critique the reformer, the, the Catholic Church on this. We need to do this. Because the tendency of every Christian, and this is why Paul focuses on it so much, the tendency of every Christian is to fight against the scandal of grace alone and faith alone. Grace alone, faith alone makes no sense to us. What makes sense to us is religion. I do this, I get rewarded. I don't do this, I get punished. What, that makes sense. Religion makes sense. What doesn't make sense is this scandalous news of grace alone through faith alone, and even faith is a gift. We just can't get our stubborn heads around it. And so what we constantly do is we constantly try to find a way to get around grace alone, faith alone. Now, we're more shrewd. We would never, ever, ever call the sacraments an act that I do for my own justification. We would never say that I need to go to a priest to confess my sins so that the priest could absolve me. We would never say that, that, in, the, that in the Eucharist um, I am actually being justified. We would never, ever, ever talk that way. But, boy, do we live that way. I was listening to, um, I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to, I can't remember who said it. I'm going to quote somebody, and I can't quote him. But here's, here's what he said. 
He said, you know what the sacrament of revivalism is? It's the sinner's prayer. If you don't say the sinner's prayer rightly and in this way, you'll be scared to death that you're not saved. That's a sacrament. That's a sacrament. The sacramental practice of the revivalism was you got to walk an aisle, you got to say the sinner's prayer, you got to pray this prayer to be, where do you see that in the Bible? That is completely added to the gospel. We've created a sacrament. We've created a way that we can participate in this. Your, your, your devotion life, your, uh, your moralism, your I do these things and I don't do these things, your uh, theological snobbery. Some, you, know, you know what the, you know what the um, adding to the works that the reform thinkers do is we get grace alone and faith alone and you don't. <laughs> Woo, that's ironic. I get grace, you don't. So I'm true Christian. Okay, so I've just converted faith alone, grace alone into something that I have done. And which is on and on and on we could go with these ways that we try to add to the scandal that it is. You just need to let it be a scandal. It is grace alone, through faith alone, and even the faith is a gift. You do nothing. Now, out of that view of salvation, you can start seeing this controversial, crazy thing that people think we're nuts about developing called Calvinism. Okay, hold on. If, if it is only by grace, if Jesus Christ is the only mediator, we don't have to go through the church. If it's only by grace, I do nothing for it. And even my belief in Jesus was a gift that he gave me. Who's in charge of salvation here? And John Calvin started saying, oh, God is in charge of salvation. The Father chose. The Son dies. The Spirit comes and regenerates and gives you faith. God, from beginning to end, is in charge of salvation that's all we mean when we talk about a reformed view of salvation. The loaded words that you see in Scripture and there in Scripture, you can't avoid them. The predestination, the election, all that. All it's saying is this right here. Who does salvation? You or God? We believe God and God alone. And if we, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, all of God, then it leads us to the last which was the creed and cry of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. If it's true that our only foundation are the Holy Scriptures, which God inspired, if it's true that our only mediator is God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's true that our only hope is grace of God, and if it's true that the only access to salvation is through faith, which is a gift of God, you have no reason to boast, God gets all the glory. Now, in the time, that was not the case. There were two heroes of salvation, the church and you. Three heroes. Jesus, the church, and you. But boy, did the church and you get a lot of the attention. If the church is the mediator... If the church is, go back through those solos. If the church is the authority along with scripture, if the church is the mediator, if the church tells you what to do to be made right with God, well, if you are saved, who gets the glory? Who is the hero of that? 
If you do sacraments, if you do penance, if you outperform others, who gets the glory there? You. And so what you have in, the, in, in, in that day was a celebrity culture of, uh, within the church. Um, a, 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 a just, uh, and in its worst forms, just an out, all-out worship of the church and the Pope and, and whatnot. But even then, just a celebrity culture and then a self-righteous culture where I'm better than you because I am more religious than you. So the church was getting the glory. People were getting the glory. Oh, yeah, Jesus, he gets glory too. Well, the reformers come and say, no, 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 no. It's his scripture. It's his grace. It's, it's, it's through him alone. It's faith alone that he gives us. Therefore, God and God alone gets the glory. And so this creed began rising up out of the Reformation, solo deo, solo deo gloria, solo deo gloria, solo deo gloria. God and his glory alone. Now, let's let it critique us. Um, we love to say solo deo gloria in the Reformed Church. Sounds so great. We have a slogan here, the glory of Christ and Christ alone. We sign our letters, the glory of God alone. We dedicate our books to the glory of God alone. We love the creed. It resonates with us. But is it our practice? Well, I'll tell you if it's your practice. First, in your life, um, by the way um, you view others, um, by your pride or your humility, by your critical spirit or your humble spirit. Um, if you look down upon people who are not Christians, who are not believers, if you view the world with this antagonistic us versus them, I'm glad I'm not them. You know what that is? Behind that, is a deep, wicked self-righteousness. I figured something out that they didn't. I'm better than them. So don't call yourself a Calvinist if you are not humbly walking around saying, but for the grace of God, would that be me? Humility, humility and the repentance of a judgmental spirit is the number one fruit of a person who truly lives for the glory of God alone. Because they literally walk around saying, Look, you are no better than me. I know that. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, the Lord gave me his grace. The Lord gave me his faith. I don't know why. All it does is humble me. So humility. If you are self-righteousness, pride, a critical spirit, all these different things, that is fruit that you do not believe in the glory of God alone and you are wanting to steal his glory. But I would even say we have, we have, and I'm saying this in particular, there's a unique application. I think we need to be careful with this one. Um, the, the cult, we can, we, of course, nobody is going to say, well, okay. Nobody's going to say the Catholic doctrines, okay? But what I see emerging, and it's very troubling to me, um, is a culture of evangelical celebrityism um, where where we are creating little popes that we listen to everything they say, we worship them, we take selfies with them. I'm speaking, it, it just, if you're older, just you, you have no idea what I'm talking about, maybe. Uh, just, you're, you're fine. I'm talking to some younger people here. We go to these conferences and, and get, oh, just, even this, and, and well, I won't use a the name. There's, there's a podcast 
that says, that's, that, that literally the title of it is, Ask Pastor in this guy's name. And people, like, it's, it's like going to the Pope. And it's just this celebrity culture. And I just want to say, don't ask him. Go ask your, your local pastor that's not as gifted as him and doesn't preach like him and, and doesn't have the wisdom like him, but he knows you. Go talk to your pastor. Or better yet, go talk to your community. Don't ask, don't ask him. Ask your community, those who actually know you. We are, we are buying into a celebrity culture that infected the church at the time, and it's dangerous. It implodes. Not only do we see it imploding with our heroes, all of these heroes are just, you know, collapsing. Particularly the ones that pursue the celebrityism, they always collapse. The ones that, that are fighting against it seem to be able to handle it. But I would even say this on a local level. Um, you know, we in the PCA, and I would, we are a pulpit-centric church, okay? That's our, that's our history, that's our culture. Um, and I'm just speaking from personal experience here. There's, there were, there, I, I can never live up to the expectations that a, a congregation has as a senior pastor. I, I just can't do it. I cannot live up to expectations that are placed upon me. Nor could any other pastor of, of churches like, I'm not saying ours, really kind of the evangelical reform PCA culture. Like, we create little popes that we can put on a pedestal and worship. And I'm telling you, every single one of us will let you down. If you got to know me in my life, in my struggles, I would supremely let you down. And I've probably let a lot of you in this room down. And our pastors in the past have let us down. And if you put pastors, clergy, celebrity preachers, podcasts, if you put them on a pedestal, you will do what they did there and they will collapse and you will collapse with them. The glory of Jesus Christ alone. I am a broken, fallible, a lot of issues dude who's just trying to point you to Jesus. Because I truly believe in his glory and his Alone, I love when, I can't remember, again, I'm going to quote somebody, I can't remember, one of these guys, that's really famous, um, was asked, oh, so you're the guy with all the answers, and he says, no, I'm the guy who points you to the guy with all the answers. That understanding of all we are, if if we learn anything from Luther's life of fear, depression, anger, anti-Semitic rantings, Calvin's failures, Knox failures, all the reformers' failures, if we learn anything, it's this. All they are are just weak, broken, fallible people that our God has chosen to use for his glory. And that's it. And so we repent of the glory that we pursue in our own lives and we repent of the glory that we try to project on each other's lives and we say, no, 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 no. All things exist for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your scriptures, which are true. Thank you for Christ, who is risen and true. Thank you for grace, which is true. Thank you for faith, which is a gift. Thank you for your glory, which is our only ambition. Return us to these truths. Let them critique us, not just let them be an opportunity for us to critique the past or critique the Catholic Church. Let these truths critique our own hearts where we are falling short in them and help us to live, basing our life on Scripture alone, trusting in Christ alone, our only hope in your grace alone, not by works, but by faith alone, all to the glory of God alone. This is our prayer. 
Now for us who are going into worship, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to worship you well. You deserve all the glory in this hour. I pray that you would get it, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.